All right, well, this morning we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews, so you guys can open up there. Um, But we'll go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and then we'll dig into the word of God. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word, and I praise you for giving us the book of Hebrews for this week. We know that this is in your sovereign plan that we would need to hear the encouragement and the exhortation in this book today. Pray that you would work it in our hearts and encourage the faint-hearted and exhort and convict those who are hard-hearted, and that you would use this to draw us closer to yourself and to give us confidence and assurance and a greater love for you. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, today is our first Sunday morning Sunday school in 2020, and that made me think about when we started the Sunday school class last year, which was at the beginning of January 2019. So we've gone an entire year doing the Sunday school, and I thought it would be good to look back because when we started doing the Sunday school, we started in the Old Testament. We started doing an overview of each of the books in the Bible, starting with an overview of the whole Old Testament, and then going from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through. And there were points where it may have felt like we were kind of slogging through the Old Testament, talking through all of this history, all of this theology about this nation that we're not a part of, all of this you know, thousands of year old material, but that was actually really important and intentional. So we really wanted to focus in on certain aspects of the Old Testament, like the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, where God promised Abraham to bless him and to give him land and then offspring, and then to see how that's developed in the book of Exodus, where God brings Abraham's descendants, who are now a nation, out of bondage in Egypt, and then makes the Mosaic Covenant with them. We wanted to look at both of those covenants. And then we talked a lot about the Mosaic Covenant and its stipulations in Deuteronomy and saw how the nation of Israel did or did not obey those stipulations throughout their history. And then in Leviticus, we saw the incredible standards of God's holiness reflected in the sacrificial system, in the tabernacle, and then later on, which would be replicated in the temple. And then for... A a large part of our time together, we looked at the history of Israel in the land, that they've been given all these promises. We were working forwards through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all these promises that were hopefully culminating in this great blessing of being in the land, and Israel immediately messed up in Joshua and Judges and in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. All of these books of history, one of the main things that we saw was how poorly the nation of Israel handled these things and failed to keep the covenant. But then we also saw the promise of a new covenant in the prophets. And you could even see this hinted at throughout the initial history of Israel. And so we saw this new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and it offered hope that something better was coming. And then when we finished up overviewing the Old Testament in August and moved into the New Testament, we started to see all of our groundwork and kind of investment into the Old Testament truth pay off. When we would see themes from Israel's history, from these covenants, and with the promise of the new covenant, we started seeing those replicated and fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in the work that he was doing. And it's actually really important that we spent that time in the Old Testament, because if you just pick up the New Testament, you'll learn a lot, but you'll miss the whole backdrop and miss the depth of what Jesus came to do in light of his promises to Israel throughout their history. So Jesus obeyed where Israel and where we could not. He offered himself as a better sacrifice than the Levitical system, 
And he provided a way for the Abrahamic promise of blessing to come to the entire world to anyone who believes in him and anyone who puts faith in him. And so the reason that we spent eight months in the Old Testament was to provide this backdrop, or I should say one of the reasons that we spent that much time in the Old Testament is to provide this backdrop for the New Testament. We wanted to see those books in the Old Testament for what they were, but it's also really important to, to understand those so that we can understand the books in the New Testament more deeply and better. And every book in the New Testament has this backdrop from the Old Testament. We've looked at a lot of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, and it's, you, you would need to understand the nation of Israel to understand why that's a big deal. Um, so we've seen that throughout the whole New Testament, but the book that we're looking at today, that is Hebrews, is perhaps the one that's most saturated in the Old Testament. And that if you just picked up Hebrews without knowing anything about the Old Testament, you might be kind of lost. Or at least be wondering, why is he talking about this? Like, I, I get why he's talking about Jesus, but why is he talking about these angels? Or the high priest? Or the lampstand in the tabernacle? Like, that doesn't really make any sense. So I'm hopeful that our time that we spent over the, the last year in our Sunday school will be beneficial, especially today as we look into the book of Hebrews. So the book of Hebrews is almost entirely a comparison of the person and work of Jesus with the Old Covenant. So he holds up the Old Covenant and different aspects that are related to that, and then he holds up Jesus and how he uh, establishes the New Covenant. And it was, excuse me, it was mainly written to encourage Jewish Christians that their inclusion into the New Covenant through Jesus was better than their inclusion into the Old Covenant by obeying the law. He's saying, what you have now is better, so don't give that up and return to what you had before. Or even don't give that up and go to something else. So the, because this was written to Jewish Christians, that's where we get the name, the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, it's not just written to Jews. We can benefit from this even as Gentiles today. But that's where it gets its name, that it's written specifically to people who had this great understanding of the Jewish history to say... Okay, Jesus is actually the fulfillment of these and is better than anything that you ever had. This book was likely, likely written near the end of the 60s AD, like 67 or 68 AD. And we can know that from a couple reasons. One, chapter 13 mentions that Timothy was in prison. And that's likely an imprisonment that happened after the book of 2 Timothy was written, after Paul had already passed away. And then second... It's almost certainly written before 70 A.D. Oh, sorry, I should say, Timothy, 2 Timothy was written like 64, 65, so it had to be after that. It was almost certainly written before 70 A.D., because in 70 A.D., the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And if that had been something that had already happened, for this author who is writing about how Jesus is better than the Old Covenant, he would have included something to say, look, the physical temple was actually destroyed. Jesus is not destroyed. So the fact that he doesn't mention the destruction of the temple shows that he almost surely wrote this before AD 70. So we know the audience is Jewish Christians. We know the time is late 60s. But we actually don't know who the author of Hebrews is. And I think this is the only book in the New Testament that there's not a consensus of who wrote the book. So there's no introduction at the beginning, like in many letters. And there's no church tradition that from the early 1st or 2nd century, all believers said, yeah, this person wrote the book. So some of the Gospels, we don't have 
uh, Luke's signature at the beginning, but everyone has always ascribed it to Luke, and we have confidence that it was him. For Hebrews, um, early church tradition, even up to the third century, Origen is quoted as saying, yeah, we actually have no idea. So even at that point, they didn't know. Many people think that Paul wrote the book, but I think this is unlikely because of chapter 2, verse 3, where he says, the gospel was declared to us at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who hurt. So that's him placing himself in a category of people who heard the gospel secondhand, not directly from the Lord, which means he's saying the author is not an apostle. And that would include Paul, who met Jesus directly. He's saying, I got this secondhand. Not that that makes him any less, but that that shows he's not an apostle. And also the absence of an introduction, like in Paul's other 13 letters, probably shows that this is someone else. So we know that the author was probably a Jew who has this background in the Jewish history to be able to know all these things. But beyond that, we really can only guess. So some people say this could be Barnabas. It could be Apollos. It could be Priscilla or Aquila or maybe even Silas. But ultimately, we don't really know. And the the only people that I think really should spend a lot of time studying into this are people who want to get a PhD in some sort of New Testament theology. So if you want to go do that and figure out who it was and tell me, that's great. Otherwise, we'll operate knowing that this is a, a believing Jew who obviously has an incredible knowledge of the Old Testament, and that's okay. We don't know who wrote it, and that's, that we don't need to know who wrote it. Now, the theme of Hebrews is actually much easier to determine than the author. The theme of Hebrews is simple. It's Jesus is better. Jesus is better. All throughout the letter, you can see this theme as Jesus is compared to all sorts of different things. He's better than angels, better than Moses, and better than Joshua. And the work he accomplished through his life and his death is better than the work that was accomplished through the Levitical priesthood and all of the sacrifices that they offered. And then ultimately, the new covenant that Jesus establishes is better than the old covenant that was established with Moses. And this theme is really given to these Jewish believers because it seems like they hadn't really bought in. Or they were faced with adversity that was causing them to question, is this really where I want to be? They were people in the community who were claiming to be believers but because of hardship and suffering and difficulty, we're starting to question that and say, is this really what I want? So the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is better. Don't go away from this. And so Hebrews is really applicable for us today as we also face adversity or difficulty or face doubting. It's encouraging to us to know that Jesus is better than, than anything that came before and anything that will come after Following Jesus is better than turning away from him, even if you think you can get away from whatever adversity you're facing. And though our circumstances may seem overwhelming, Jesus is greater, and Jesus is better. So we have the book of Hebrews so that we can direct ourselves and really preach truth to ourselves back to Jesus and to remind ourselves of the grace and the truth that are found in Jesus. Now, When you read through Hebrews, you might wonder why the author spends so much time fleshing out these minute details in comparison with the Old Testament. Uh, He spends two chapters talking about angels. He talks about the nature of the Sabbath rest. And he spends a chapter talking about Melchizedek, whose story in Genesis only lasts three verses long. But the author of Hebrews builds this kind of major point about it. So you may wonder, why is he 
giving us all these detailed pieces of information from the Old Testament? Is there not something more encouraging that he could have said? You could almost say he could have accomplished his whole point of his message was just like a first century tweet, the hashtag Jesus is better, and just leave it at that. But the reason that he doesn't do that, the reason that he goes so in-depth and so in detail is to show the depth of encouragement that is available for people who are going through times of difficulty. He's saying he's not just trying to apply a spiritual band-aid to this really difficult situation. He's not trying to make light of the, the hardships that they're facing. He's saying, I get that this is hard. I get that this is really difficult and that you want to turn away from following Christ because you have to take up your cross and follow him. But I promise you, and I can prove to you that every step of the way, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is better. And so he shows from every detail, every comparison of Jesus with these things from the Old Testament that Jesus really is worth it. So he's giving them a deep foundation to base their trust in so that they can face whatever comes and whatever hardship they uh, come against. So today, we can't go into the same depth that the author does. But I would really encourage you, especially as those who are going through hardships, who face difficulty, who are weary, and um, could find yourself in the same place that some of these recipients can, this, the, the deep study of Hebrews is really worth it. To go through and evaluate, what is he saying here? What is he comparing how, what is he saying about how Jesus is better? Because he, he dives into these deep explanations of Jesus in order to come out with these incredible exhortations and encouragements. So we'll scratch the surface of those today and hopefully encourage you somewhat. But if, if you're in this place where the recipients of Hebrews were, I would really encourage you to spend some time in this book. This is a really encouraging book. So this morning, we're going to divide Hebrews into five different sections. And each section develops the idea that Jesus is better, and then it culminates in a warning or an exhortation to believers. So each section says Jesus is better than something different. Uh, the last section is, is the largest. Uh, you could fight me on this if you want. The last section is half the book because that's kind of his culmination and drawing together of all of the previous sections. And he saves his final exhortation for chapters 10 through 13, and that's just his big push to believers. So you could say that I uh, divided it up really uh, unbalanced, and that's fine, but I think this is kind of his structure of how he's laying out truth and then giving exhortation from it. So the first section is in chapters 1 and 2, and this section shows that Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than angels. So chapter 1 begins with some of the greatest Christology in Scripture, talking about the person of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So that's a big picture of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. And he created the world and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
And he is the clearest revelation of God, even clearer than the, the good and true and inspired revelation that God gave through his prophets. And so then it's interesting that the culmination of this big introduction is Jesus is better than angels. You know, if I was writing this, I, I probably wouldn't go to angels. I, I, would, I would park on he's the image of God. He's the representation. He's the glory. But the author says, and so this means he's better than angels. And then the rest of chapter 1 is quotations from the Old Testament that prove that point even further. To say Jesus has a superior nature to angels because he is God's beloved son who has authority over the world. While angels are merely created servants. And then chapter 2 adds that even though Jesus came to earth a little for a little while and became lower than the angels, like Psalm 8 says, his incarnation actually shows his superiority to them. Because he came and he was humbled in order to provide salvation that the angels could never do. And then second, in his death and resurrection, Jesus actually conquered the most powerful angel in the world, which is Satan. So he makes this point that even in his humiliation, he is conqueror and superior to angels. So why does the author of Hebrews make such a big deal that Jesus is better than angels? Because I think if I were to take a poll of all of us in here, probably none of us would say that we struggle with trying to, believing that an angel was greater than Jesus. So why does he make this big point? Well, I think we get an answer in the first verses of chapter 2. In, in verses 1 through 3, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great uh, salvation? So the point that he's making is that these angels were a type of mediator for the Mosaic Covenant. In Galatians 3.19, Paul says that the law was put in place by angels. So angels were actually a sort of delivery person for that Mosaic covenant. And so the author of Hebrews is making a comparison between Jesus, who gives this message of the new covenant, and the angels who gave the message of the old covenant. And he's saying that Jesus' message is greater. Jesus has a greater message than even the prophets. And his message is better than the angels. But this is where the warning comes in. Because he says, if that old covenant that was delivered by angels was reliable, and if that old covenant condemned those who disobeyed it, how much greater will be the condemnation for those who go against this greater covenant that Jesus has brought? He's saying Jesus is better than angels, but this covenant that they brought is not a bad covenant. And so take this as a warning that we must not fall away and neglect the covenant that Jesus has brought. And so Christians who are weary in questioning their devotion to Christ must remember the history of Israel. Israel rejected the Mosaic Covenant and received physical condemnation. And they lost their kingdom, their land, and their lives. And the penalty for rejecting the New Covenant is actually much greater. Because that penalty is eternal condemnation. For those who turn away and reject faith in Christ, the penalty is eternal condemnation. And if Israel, who had incredible benefits of their close relationship with God, didn't make it, we can't presume on ourselves and our own privileges. We must push in to know Christ better and put our, put our full trust and faith in him. We can't turn away from Jesus. 
Instead, we need to remember that he is truly God and he is truly man, and he came to rescue us from death and to give us hope. That's where we put our trust, not in ourselves, not in our own goodness or our own ability, even because even Israel, who had a, probably a greater ability and opportunity than us, fell away. We need to put our trust in Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 18 gives us hope in this when it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So for those of us going through times of testing and trial, we need to turn to Jesus and trust that he can get us through it. And it's helpful to remember that he has gone before us and knows what it's like. So we have someone who is sympathetic to us. So that's section one. Jesus is better than angels. The second section, which is in chapter 3, tells us that Jesus is better than Moses. And the warning here is, because Jesus is better than Moses, don't harden your hearts. So Moses was a highly revered figure in Judaism because of his role in the Mosaic Covenant. If, if angels were important because they delivered that covenant, Moses was more important even because he is really the figurehead and the symbol for that Mosaic Covenant. But Hebrew says, while he is important, he's actually just a servant in the house of God where Jesus is the son. <coughs> if you look at verses 5 and 6 in chapter 3, it says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So Jesus is better than Moses. And that means that followers of Jesus must not harden their hearts like the followers of Moses did. In uh, verses 7 through 11 in Hebrews 3, the author quotes from Psalm 95. And it's verses 7 through 11 in Psalm 95. Verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And that refers to the rebellion of Israel that caused them to spend the 40 years in the wilderness. The generation that came out from Egypt was kept from entering the promised land because they rebelled against God. They hardened their hearts. And so if hardening the hearts of the people of Israel kept them from missing out on God's promise, and that came under Moses, if that was how serious it was for disobeying Moses' leadership, how much worse will it be for those who harden their hearts against Jesus Christ? The author is saying that Jesus is better than Moses, so don't harden your hearts. And in verses 12 through 15, the author says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So we must guard our own hearts against unbelief. Hebrews says, I mean, Hebrews exhorts us to prove that we share in Christ by holding our original confidence firm to the end. He says that persevering will be worth it. And it's interesting that the author has confidence that they will prove themselves to be believers and that they will stand the test. But he's not just assuming that and saying, yeah, go do whatever you want. He's saying, I'm confident that you are a true believer and that you will persevere. So press in and exhort one another and help one another. Don't give up. 
press hard. Even, if, even though he's confident in the result, he's firm in commanding them what to do now. So Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. And then in chapter 4, we find that Jesus is better than Joshua. And this means that we must strive to enter God's rest. So chapter 4 begins with another warning that's based on Psalm 95. It's in verses 1 through 3, it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we have believed, sorry, we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So that last line, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, that's one of the verses quoted from Psalm 95 that the author's already put in chapter 3. It's saying that the generation that rebelled against God did not enter the promised land and thus did not enter God's rest. But the next generation who did enter the promised land under Joshua actually didn't receive that promised rest either, not in its full extent. In, in verse 8, he, the author says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And that other day that's referred to in Psalm 95 is today. He says, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. The author is telling us that Israel didn't enter God's rest by going into Canaan. He's saying that anyone who entered, enters into God, God's rest does it by faith. He's saying the rest is still available for you today. So don't harden your hearts and fail to enter that rest. The rest that believers enter into is a resting from works. So the Jews ceased working on the Sabbath in order to observe the seventh day of creation when God rested from his work. Hebrews 4 tells us that believers participate in the spiritual rest of this Sabbath by resting in our works in regard to salvation. He says, we receive this rest by faith in Christ to know that we can lay down our works and let the work of Christ be benefited to us. Verses 9 and 10 say, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So for those who believe, we have rest from our works. But then in the very next breath, the author says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So it's interesting. It's almost like he's saying, hurry up and rest, or work hard and rest. It seems counterintuitive, but he's, what he's really saying is this rest is available for those who believe. So work hard to prove your belief. Don't fall away and show that you never believed in the first place, but strive to work out your salvation and show that you are a believer. Hebrews 4 reminds us of how great eternity with Christ will be, and it calls us to not give up hope, strive to enter that rest. So the fourth section of Hebrews spans from verse 14 in chapter 4 to the end of chapter 6. So it's a little bit more than two chapters long. <coughs> and this section says that Jesus is better than any high priest who has ever come before him, and so, you must, not, you must not apostatize, or apostatize. What's a hard word to say? Apostatize. Commit apostasy. We'll go with that. So, in chapter 4 and chapter 5, 
the author begins discussing why Jesus was greater than any other high priest. He is truly human, and so he can sympathize with our weaknesses, which is a big deal. And he was also without sin, unlike the other high priests. So he didn't have to offer sacrifices to cleanse himself. So he is both merciful and sympathetic to our temptations, and he is qualified to remove our sin when we come to him for forgiveness. He is the epitome of the perfect high priest. He's the sinless mediator who can take away sin. And the superiority of Christ's priesthood is also evidenced because he is not from the order of Aaron, like all of the other Levitical priests. He is from the order of Melchizedek. And this seems to come out of left field, and he starts to really begin to get into this, these deeper truths and some history from the Old Testament. And the author actually acknowledges that and pushes pause on his discussion for a moment. He says in, in chapter 5, verse 11, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So the author will pick this up. He'll get into Melchizedek again in chapter 7. But for the end of chapter 5 and then into chapter 6, he actually pauses to convict them of their immaturity. And he says, I really want to talk about this stuff and give you this encouragement, but you're not ready for it. So we need to acknowledge this. He's saying that if I were to go into this with your immaturity, it would be like giving steak to a baby. Steak is good, and steak is better than baby food. Steak is better than milk. But it would not be good, it would not be better for that baby, because it doesn't have the maturity or the capacity to digest it. So as believers, we should be pursuing hearty spiritual food to nourish and energize ourselves as we grow weary in the world. But if we're not growing in maturity, we won't be able to digest that. We won't be able to handle the truth that we need to encourage us. So how do we grow in maturity? Well, there, there is a mental aspect. He's talking about understanding these difficult truths. So we should be pursuing doctrine and trying to understand more scripture. That's a vital aspect of this maturity. <coughs> but there's also an aspect of this maturity that is seen in living out the truths that we understand. And that's why he's been exhorting his audience to press in to know God more. So maturity comes from a greater discipline in understanding and studying Scripture, but it also comes in a greater discipline in applying Scripture to our lives. And he's saying if you want to be able to handle all of the difficulties of life, you need to grow in Christ so that you can move on from baby food to a full steak and potatoes meal because you're going to need that. So chapter 6 gives a stark backdrop to this warning against immaturity. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. <coughs> Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So that's about as serious as you can get to say that people who do these things and fall away cannot be restored to repentance. That's serious. And I want to pause on these verses because it can sound like they're teaching that a believer can lose their salvation. 
that someone who is a true believer in Christ and then falls away from him could come to a place where he can lose his salvation and not be restored to Christ. It says that those who have been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit can then fall away. And that sounds like it could be describing a believer. But I strongly believe that these verses do not teach that. They do not teach that a believer can lose their salvation. And there's an important principle of Bible interpretation that says that we need to interpret difficult passages through the lens of clear passages. That if two passages seem to contradict each other, and one is very straightforward and easy to understand, and the other is hard to understand, (coughs) we need to look at the hard one through the lens of the easy one. So there are some very clear passages in the rest of Scripture that speak to this issue. In John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There doesn't seem to be any wiggle room in that, that if someone is the Father's, if someone is Christ's, if they're a true believer, they cannot be snatched away. Nothing can take them away. And then in Philippians 1.6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's saying that if God starts that work of salvation in you, he will bring it to completion. So both of those passages are essentially saying that someone would have to be stronger than God in order to lose their salvation. And that's just not possible. Nothing can take that away. So these are very clear passages, whereas the description in Hebrews is actually not as clear. Yeah, you you could interpret it that way and see that that's what it's saying, but that's not the only way, and it's not as straightforward. So the phrase being enlightened, that could refer to God shining light in our heart to save us, but that could refer to someone who has understood truths about Scripture and had their mind enlightened just mentally. And tasting the heavenly gift, that could refer to tasting the gift of salvation. You could, you, you could probably see it that way. But that could also refer to an unbeliever who is taking communion and actually partaking and eating a heavenly gift that is in reference to salvation. So that's not salvific at all. And then sharing in the Spirit, yeah, that could refer to being indwelt by the Spirit, but it could also refer to an unbeliever who's around a body of believers that are corporately indwelt by the Spirit. And rather than being believers who lost their salvation being described here, I think actually this passage is describing an unbeliever who maybe professes to be a believer and is around believers and has a great benefit because of that, and so should be warned not to fall away, but actually never believed in the first place. So because of what we know from the rest of Scripture, that a believer can't lose their salvation, and because this passage describes someone who is not a believer and yet has these benefits, I think that's the best way to understand this. And that actually... Is that my phone? Sorry. I, uh, my phone stopped vibrating, so I turned sound on. I didn't anticipate that. Um, there's actually a parallel to this. We're not just creating a random category of person out of nothing. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus gave a parable of different types of seed and soil. And he says, when the gospel goes out, some of the seed falls on bad soil and it never takes root. And some soil 
fell on good, or some seed fell on good soil, and it sprouts up immediately and bears fruit. So that's a clear example of an unbeliever and a believer. But then there's two other types of soils. One grows up initially, but it has no roots. It has no deep foundation, and so it dies. And then the other grows up initially, but it's choked by weeds and by thorns. And the principle here is there are people who actually show signs of growth, but don't prove that they're actually alive because they fade away. And this is where the illustration breaks down. Because Jesus isn't saying that some people can be saved and then lose it. He's obviously said that clearly elsewhere, that that's not true. What he's saying is there are people who give the impression of life, but then prove that they are not because they fade away. And I think that's a better category to see these people that Paul is addressing, or sorry, not Paul, the author of Hebrews is addressing in chapter 6 here. These people who are around the group, who have these benefits and have every privilege possible, and yet because of hardships in life, because of immaturity, because of many other reasons, they prove that they were never believers in the first place and they fade away. And he gives such a stark warning against that because falling away and showing that they're, they have unbelief has eternal consequences. So when you read this passage as a believer, you shouldn't read it and say, man, if I mess up so badly, I could lose my salvation and never be restored. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that every one of us needs to read this and say, I need to prove my belief so that I don't fall away and show that I never believed in the first place. So we don't want to take the teeth away from it. But we also don't want to cause us to doubt so much that we're in constant fear of losing our salvation, because that's not the truth at all. And it's interesting, in verses 9 and 10, the author actually, after giving this warning, expresses confidence in them that they will pass the test. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So he's saying, I've seen you persevere. I've seen you evidence your faith by, by what you've done. And so I really believe you're going to be a believer. And as we read this, while we should do an honest evaluation to say, is my faith real? We also need to be honest about the fruit that we see in our lives, if that's the case. And not grow into gross introspection and doubt when we are ignoring clear facts that, no, I, I can see God working in my life. I am truly evidencing my faith. So that's uh, the fourth section, that Jesus is better than the high priest. The last section covers chapters 7 through 13. And unfortunately, I've only left myself a couple minutes to go through this. So I'd already planned to kind of skim this, but this is even greater encouragement for you guys to go do your own study. But these chapters tell us, <clears throat> that Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. And so we need to draw near to Christ. And this is really the culmination of the four former truths and the point of the whole book. So chapter 7 details how Jesus is a better high priest because he's from the order of Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek is that obscure character from Genesis 14 who appeared after Abraham defeated the kings that had uh, taken Lot captive. And Abraham paid tithes to him, and then Melchizedek blessed him. So he was acting in some sense like a high priest. And some think that Melchizedek was actually a theophany of Christ, that Christ appeared to Abraham beforehand, and there wasn't actually a person named Melchizedek. That was just Christ. Because chapter 7, verse 3 says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So that sounds like, oh, maybe that's Christ. 
But I think the next phrase shows that it's probably not. Because it says, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So I think this is speaking of someone that served in a similar role to Christ, that he kind of pops up in the story out of nowhere with no origin. And he is a priest of righteousness. His name means king of righteousness, and he acts like that priest. So he serves as, as someone that the author of Hebrews can point to and say, Jesus is more like this than like the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is more like Melchizedek than any Levitical priest, and as such, he is superior to them. And so Jesus is a better priest. And that's good because the Levitical priesthood was not good enough to attain salvation. So we need a better high priest. And Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And we need a better high priest to enact a better covenant. And so chapter 8 says that Jesus, as that high priest, enacted the new covenant. And it quotes from Jeremiah 31. Then chapter 9 tells us that Jesus, as the better high priest, enacting the better covenant, entered the holy place that's even better than the holy place in the temple. Because in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Jesus entered into the presence of God, the eternal presence of his holiness, and offered himself as a sacrifice. And so his sacrifice was better, because it was a sinless, spotless sacrifice of himself. And even where he offered it was better than the high priest had offered it. And we also know that it was better because it was acceptable. Chapter 10, verse 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So every aspect of Jesus' ministry and person has been better. And it culminates by saying, His sacrifice was accepted once for all. And now all sacrifices have ceased. So this is the the pinnacle of what the author is saying. The perfect high priest offered the perfect sacrifice to enact the new covenant that is effective in taking away sin. So it took us 10 chapters to get there, but hearing all of that truth and seeing how Jesus is better every step of the way is more effective than just saying Jesus is better. He proves it and shows us how. So unfortunately, what we don't have time for is chapters 10 and 13, which really flesh out the commands of what we're to do In verse 19, he says, I can't read it, I'm sorry. Essentially, he says, let us draw near to Christ because of these things. And then let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And then chapter 11, we're familiar with that God, or that there's all these examples of people who have gone before and shown this faith. That we're to look to and say, they have gone before and I can have the same faith. And then the greatest example in chapter 12 is Jesus Christ, that he has gone before us for the joy that was set before him. And so when we face doubt or despair or discouragement, we're called to look to Jesus, to everything that he has done. And I want to close just by reading the last uh, benediction in chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, 
working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You guys are dismissed.